Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Today's episode is presented by Lloyd's Banking Group. Everyone deserves a safe place to call home. That's why Lloyd's Banking Group has championed the social housing sector for decades, supporting more than 340 housing associations across the UK. You're listening to EU Confidential, the number one European politics podcast. And you're listening to the final episode of 2019. I'm Andrew Gray, Politico's EU editor in Brussels. Joining us from London, UK politics reporter Annabel Dixon. Hi, Annabel. Hello from Boris, Britain. And hi from Berlin to Chief Europe correspondent Matt Karnichnik. Hi, Matt. Hello, hello. Uh, Reem is off this week, but she'll be back with us in the new year. And we are about to dive into the UK election and our top political moments of 2019. We're also going to get into Catalan politics and artificial intelligence later in the show. But first, we wanted to ask you, our listeners, for something. Give us our New Year's resolutions. Tell us what you'd like us to do with the podcast next year. What topics should we tackle? Who should we interview? Should we make the show longer or shorter? What should we do more of and what should we do less of? Or, to paraphrase a great political philosopher, do you like us just the way we are? Ask your parents. We're really open to all your suggestions. Just drop us an email. It doesn't have to be long. To podcast at politico.eu. You can do it right now or any time over the holiday season. OK, so now let's get into the UK general election. Annabelle was a big majority for Boris Johnson. How did he do it and how big a factor was Brexit? Well, I think the key thing was getting a Brexit deal. I was speaking to people in the campaign and they said, you know, without that Brexit deal, they don't think they would have done it because they managed to maintain that coalition. Obviously, those that sort of big swathe of Brexit voters, but they also managed to hold the line with people who voted Remain, but who feel that Brexit needs to be done, we need to move on, democracy needs to be respected. So that was that was key. But also um, the Brexit party um, standing aside in lots of Tory seats was also, I think, one of the really big moments of the campaign and a crucial factor in Boris Johnson's victory. Mm. Matt, what did you make of it from Berlin? Well, it was kind of as predicted, really. I think that the... Uh, European establishment politicians got what they wanted, more or less, as we were discussing last week. They were really hoping for clarity on this issue, and I think that's what most people anticipated, and that's what happened. So I think a lot of Europeans are hoping that because Boris has such a massive majority now that you know he might soften some of his 
positions in terms of the EU. I, I, I suspect uh, Annabelle thinks that's uh, wishful thinking. I, I, I don't think that's the mood music coming out of Downing Street. Um, certainly ever since the result, talk of softening has been very much shot down. Whether that's sabre rattling or um, not, they're going to go in hard on the negotiations. So the idea that it's going to be a kind of sweetness and light and Boris is going to be best mates with the EU still, I think is probably optimistic. Andrew, what do you think in Brussels? I guess looking at it from both sides, I I get the impression that obviously the Conservatives, the people around Boris Johnson think that they took a hard line, if you like, when they took over the government, they took a harder line with the EU and that ultimately worked. Now, I don't think that's quite how it's seen um, from the Brussels side. I think in general reaction to the election kind of there's a real spectrum here. As Matt says, I think the overwhelming view is relief. But I do think, you know, there was always a faction here that wanted to play this long and hope there was some way of avoiding uh, Brexit. You might call it the Tusk faction, you know, around Donald Tusk, the previous president of the European Council. But he's out of that job now. And I think, you you know, people recognise that's it. It's done. And it's about the next phase. And then, but very quickly, we're going to get into this question as to can a deal be done during the course of the year, uh, if it looks like it can't, do you prolong the transition period, uh, which is meant to run out at the end of the year? And we know that the UK government's saying we're not going to do that. In fact, we're going to legislate to make it not possible for us to do that. Of course, you can undo legislation just as well as you can pass it uh, if you've got a big majority. But um, yeah, I guess all to be decided. But I do think attention is very much switching now to that next period. And what people here are saying is we need to focus on the things where there really would be a cliff edge if we don't get a deal done. But do you think anybody, um, you know, in European political parties will be looking at this victory and trying to draw lessons for it? Ultimately, you know, it produced a thumping majority. Will people in, in Merkel's CDU or, or other parties be, um, you know, sending their people over to take a look and see if they can borrow from this playbook? If anybody should be looking at what happened in the UK election, it's the the left, the center left in particular, because there's a lot of discussion around Europe and also in the United States with the presidential election coming up about whether the traditional center left needs to move further to the left and do essentially what the Labour Party did under Jeremy Corbyn. And I think that the main lesson to be learned from that is that you do that at your peril. I mean, that is obviously, we'll maybe save that for another time, Annabelle. There's obviously a big post-mortem going in within the Labour Party. But maybe just to finish our discussion on the UK election, because obviously uh, we talk a lot about the European Union and uh, we've just been talking about future relations with the European Union. But there is another uh, union which is uh, very much up for grabs, I would say now, and that's uh, the Union, uh, the United Kingdom. And, you know, we had the report uh, last week, which I did from on the ground in in Scotland. I know that Matt particularly enjoyed the accents. Um, And, you know, you were in Northern Ireland recently. What's your assessment of the state of that union right now? Well, I I think Boris Johnson had a terrible night outside England. He lost seven seats in Scotland and the nationalist Scottish National Party won 13 more. So... Things are not looking good. In in Northern Ireland, the only pro-Brexit party, the Democratic Unionist Party, they had a terrible night. So uh, I think the pressing question actually is probably going to be um, more in Scotland than Northern Ireland, funnily enough. Uh, Nicola Sturgeon, the leader, is 
you know, already within hours of her victory, talking about the need for a fresh Scottish independence referendum. As people who were listening last week will know, uh, the SNP, uh, at least in some constituencies, ran very much on a stop Brexit message. And so uh, Boris Johnson and others are able to say, hold on, all these people who voted for the SNP were not necessarily asking for a vote on Scottish independence, far less to actually have Scottish independence. However, you know, that was part of the SNP's platform. They can make the case that they have a mandate. But I think we will see this one play out over a couple of years. Um, Let's move to our um, political moments of the year. We asked each of you to to pick one moment that kind of summed up the year or was the kind of standout political uh, moment of the year. Matt, do you want to go first with yours? Well, for me, given my Austrian background, I think it has to be uh, Ibiza. The scandal involving the now former vice-chancellor of Austria, Heinz Christian Strache, who was filmed in a finca on the island of Ibiza trying to sell influence to a woman he believed to be the niece of a Russian oligarch. And he was prepared to exchange very lucrative infrastructure contracts and uh, even a majority stake in Austria's largest tabloid newspaper if she would funnel illegal donations to his far-right party, the Freedom Party. I think that the scandal itself, which was caught on a secret video, is hugely damaging to Austria's reputation within the EU. And it shows really the true face of these populist movements, not just in Austria, but I think uh, across Europe, that uh, they're often willing to um, sell political influence and, um, you know, that there's not really an ideological underpinning behind these parties as, as they often claim. Right. And they're not as, as patriotic as they, may, as they may make out if they're willing to kind of sell off infrastructure and, and media to, to kind of foreign uh, influences. Annabelle, what's your uh, moment of 2019? Well, we were lacking a really juicy political scandal. I think we were all too busy Brexiting. But I've settled on the moment that shy, retiring Mr Farage decided to launch his Brexit party um, in April. I know what I'm going to do. I'm going to set up a party. I'm going to call it the Brexit party. But given that it's the most Googled word in the English language, I wonder whether the Electoral Commission will allow me to use the name. Well, they have. And you are here today at the birth, at the launch of a new force in British politics. Welcome to the Brexit Party. Then completely spooked the Conservatives with his new hard Brexit sort of political pressure group and really was a factor in in how we've ended up where we are. In what way do you think it basically pushed the Conservatives to to go for Boris Johnson and to kind of take, to try and take a more tougher line on Brexit? Yeah, I, I think that's right. I think it was the moment that Theresa May was really done for. She stood down just before the European elections when it became pretty clear that the Brexit party were going to do really well at the expense of the Conservatives. And it was that was a key factor in spooking Tories into backing Boris Johnson. They realised they needed 
their own Mr. Brexit um, in charge if they were going to have any chance of electoral success. And then, of course, he stood down in all of those Tory seats. So having sort of marched all his troops to the top of the hill, he then sort of stood them all down and bingo, Boris Johnson got that majority. Mm. Yep, that definitely sounds like one of the moments of of the year. So mine is... um... It took place late at night, late on a Sunday night at an EU summit or actually on the sidelines of an EU summit. We'll try and play in a bit of this clip because one of the great things about this is that it was broadcast live on Facebook and uh, that just kind of makes it seem very 2019 for me. What do you mean? Yeah, he's going to video. So what did you see? Uh, This was the kind of marathon summit to try and figure out who should be the next uh, leaders of the European Union. And it was really a pivotal moment because on that Sunday night, it looked like Franz Timmermans, the uh, Dutch Social Democrat, was going to be the president of the European Commission. And Timmermans uh, goes off to meet Boyko Borisov, who is the Prime Minister of Bulgaria, of course. They meet in a room at uh, the Bulgarian diplomatic mission. And uh, these are two very contrasting characters. You know, uh, Timmermans is this kind of polyglot. Uh, You might see him as kind of Mr. Brussels, a very kind of sophisticated and polished operator. Uh, Boyko Borisov is a former bodyguard and fireman. But also bouncer, it wasn't a bouncer. He a bouncer. Yeah, he was indeed a bouncer at one point, and you know he has the physique that would uh, lead you to believe that. Uh, but the great thing is that he is also a very um, skilled political operator, just in a very different way from Franz Timmermans. And the two of them come together. Compromise. Mm-hmm. Compromise is uh, on the horizon. You know, this is about this is the kind of backroom chat that you don't normally see, but it's broadcast live on Facebook, where Borisov, who's uh, from the European People's Party, the centre-right, is saying to Timmermans, the Social Democrat, looks like there's a deal on the horizon. That's fine, really. You know, you know more about the European Commission. Manfred Weber, who's meant to be our guy, you know, he knows more about the Parliament. He can stay there. I just wanted to talk to you about the things that are important to us. And then he lists uh, various things, including, you know, Bulgaria becoming part of the Schengen zone and uh, uh, a gas hub, which is very important to Bulgaria. You know what's important for us? And all of this is played out live on Facebook until Franz Timmermans says, I understand. I'm not sure we should be recording all of this. I'm not sure we should be be recording all of this. And then the screen goes black. And uh, what you know, I do think is a very, it was a very significant moment because it did look like a deal was going to be done. Timmermans was going to be in charge. Then things took a very different direction. Ultimately, the European People's Party decided if we can't have Weber, this um, Spitzenkandidat system we've been very keen on about, it has to be one of these lead candidates of the parties. Actually, 
That comes second to us having the job. Suddenly Ursula von der Leyen emerged and the whole constellation was uh, was different. So it was, I think, a, a pivotal moment and one that we uh, were very privileged and fortunate to see uh, live on video. So that's my moment. It's of like year. a scene from The Godfather. Yeah, it, there is something um, very much... Um, of, what uh, I found really interesting uh, about that, by the way, is just that, you know, Timmerman says almost nothing. <laughs> yes. Because... He can see that he's being filmed, and he's very, very careful about what yeah. he says. Yeah, he's sort of nodding along and saying, yes, our relationship is, is on the basis of honesty. But, you know, this is the guy who was, you know, meant to be the EU's uh, Mr. Rule of Law, talking to someone who, well, let's just say that some uh, some people would not Used see to be as, a bouncer. Yeah, used to be a bouncer and, and, and does politics in a very different way. And, um, you know, but he's he's nodding along thinking... If this is what it takes, uh, this is what I'll do. Are we expecting this to catch on in 2020 to be a sort of... Well, I think this should be... I think we should encourage everybody. You know, we have a lot of people, you know, in the Brussels bubble and in the political environments elsewhere. Facebook Live uh, may sound, you know, a bit like one for the parents rather than the Instagram generation, but it's a great way to make politics more transparent and we'd encourage everybody to stream the, these meetings live in future. So there's maybe that's a New Year's resolution for, for our listeners listeners for uh, for 2020 so i think we'll leave it there annabelle matt thanks very much have a great holiday and uh, we'll talk to you in 2020 thank you very much coming up later we have an interview with catalonia's foreign minister but first janos delker politico's artificial intelligence correspondent takes a deep dive into deep fakes at the end of last year the government of gabon a small oil-rich country in the west of africa released a video of its president, Ali Bongo. The video showed Bongo, 59 years old at the time, giving his traditional New Year's address. But something about him was off. He didn't really move his right arm. He mumbled through parts of his speech, and some of his facial expressions seemed odd. Maybe Bongo was just sick. Three months earlier, he had suffered a stroke while on a trip, and he was now undergoing medical treatment in Morocco, where they filmed the video. But in the days that followed, rumors started to spread. First on social media, then in newspapers, and eventually all across the country. And people started to ask, is that person in the video really Ali Bongo? Or could it be a deepfake? It's known as a deepfake, a new sophisticated way of making fake video using artificial intelligence. These videos are all deepfakes, synthesized content created using artificial intelligence. Fake, fake, disgusting news. Deepfakes will make for even more complicated arguments about what is fake news and what is real. I'm Janusz Delker. Politico's artificial intelligence correspondent based in Berlin. Deepfakes are videos in which artificial intelligence technology is used 
to make people appear to do or say things that they never did. Those videos are becoming increasingly convincing, which in turn is making people increasingly skeptical of what they see with their eyes. And in the case of Ali Bongo, doubts about whether or not the video is real grew so strong that the uncertainty triggered partly by this video would push Gabon to the brink of a national crisis. C'est l'heure du journal de l'Afrique. Soyez les bienvenus sur France 24 à la une ce soir. Cette tentative de putsch avorté au Gabon. Des militaires se sont emparés de la radio nationale ce lundi. First of all, let's get you some breaking news coming out of Gabon, where soldiers have taken over the national radio station. They've criticized President Ali Bongo Ndimba, who's been out of the country for medical treatment since October. Ali Bongo recently addressed... A week after the video was released, members of the country's military launched a coup d'état. They took control of the state broadcaster. Le message à la nation du chef de l'État, Ali Bongo Ondimba, visant à clore rapidement le débat sur sa santé, a plutôt renforcé les doutes sur sa capacité à assumer les lourdes charges liées à la fonction de président de la République. Une fois encore, And when one of the leaders read out a statement live on the radio, he said that one reason for the uprising had been the video of Bongo's New Year's Eve address, which had quote, reinforced doubts about the president's ability to continue to carry out the responsibilities of his office. The attempted coup was over within hours. Some of the plotters were killed, others imprisoned, and since then there haven't been any other efforts to overthrow Bongo. But still, Gabon has never been the same. It's a total information disorder. This is Julie Ovono. She's the executive director of Internet Without Borders, an NGO in Paris. Almost a year after the video was released, her NGO and researchers have found no evidence that the clip was indeed doctored, but they also can't say with absolute certainty that it wasn't. Regardless of that, what unfolded in Gabon illustrates that, at the end of the day, it doesn't even take a skillfully produced video to cause disruption. The very existence of deepfakes is enough to inject uncertainty into public life, especially if things are already volatile. I feel a bit frustrated that we're talking about this only now. Yeah. I mean, the disinformation disorder started, really started three years ago now already. The only moment when we started hearing Facebook talk about deepfakes was when the Nancy Pelosi affair started. We want to give this president the opportunity to do something historic for our country. In May of this year, a video of the Speaker of the U.S. House of Representatives, Nancy Pelosi, one of President Donald Trump's most outspoken opponents, went viral. With basic editing tools, the recording had been slowed down to make the 79-year-old look drunk. But although it was quickly debunked as fake, the video dominated the global news cycle for several days. And it was only then that the global public really took notice of the problem of altered videos. That's really unfortunate because deepfakes have been around for some time now. Another part of the problem is that their response is so disappointing yeah. because it's not even a question of memes. I mean, they have 
billions, they make billions every year. What yeah. does it cost to them to invest? I mean, seriously invest in understanding and not waiting that it happens in Europe or in the U.S. And when I asked Julie about the lessons to be learned from the case in Gabon, she told me something that I keep thinking about. With anything that's related to tech, you can be sure that small countries with no to very little regulation and uh, no data protection, all the no man's land, the legal no man's land uh, with regards to uh, data and internet are guinea pigs of companies, of hackers, of whatever expert that wants to try stuff on the internet but cannot do it in Europe because there's a GDPR or there is something else and cannot do it in the US because there, is a, there are civil society organizations there doing a lot of work and also politicians paying attention, etc., etc. What we're saying to platforms is that usually they must pay attention more to what's happening in those very little countries that they tend to neglect because, you know, they don't make a lot of money there or it's just, you know, Asians or Africans. I'm sorry to talk like that, but yeah, mm. that's no, unfortunately yeah. how, we're, how we end up thinking because of what happens. So they should pay attention to what's happening there because that's exactly where the next big thing is going to happen. Julie was speaking about big tech companies like Facebook. But the truth is that the same can be said about lawmakers, regulators, as well as Western journalists like myself who cover politics and technology. We've seen that with Cambridge Analytica. The company that used the data of millions of Facebook users for political advertising. We're seeing that now with the Huawei scandal. The Chinese company which reportedly helped governments like Uganda and Zambia to spy on political opponents. That's one big lesson that we could take from that is really pay more attention to what's happening beyond the borders of US and EU or the Western world in general, because that's not where things happen first. Things happen there, but when it's too late or when the problem has become so big to solve. That was Julie Owono of Internet Without Borders, ending that report from Politico's Janos Delker. Now let's move to Catalonia, very much in the news this week with the European Court of Justice ruling that Spain was wrong not to let pro-independence politician Oriol Junqueras take his seat in the European Parliament. We heard the Spanish government's view on Catalonia from Spain's EU minister earlier in the year. Now let's hear the other side of the argument. A few weeks ago, Politico's Emma Anderson sat down in Washington with Alfred Bosch, the Catalan government's foreign minister. How do you find that conversation here in, in the U.S.? How does that differ maybe from talking with people in, in Brussels, for example, in the European capital? Many things are different than many things are similar. But what we do encounter is uh, insight on the uh, Catalan reality and the situation is not so deep here. There's many other issues. So in a way... Uh, there's less knowledge, but uh, there's very deep involvement with uh, Western values, with uh, democracy, dialogue, human rights. And we do have a case there because you know, the Kingdom of Spain has been engaging in a policy of repression, which is not helping anybody. It's not helping us, but it's not helping them. When you see that uh, people are being put in jail for political ideas or actions, when you see that people are pushed into exile, when you see that there's a police crackdown on voters in the act of voting, when you see there's um, uh, the Catalan government, which is legal, legitimate, and constitutional, 
being suspended, the Catalan parliament equally legal, legitimate and constitutional, which is being dissolved. When you see things like that, when you see uh, opinion from European judges mm, for those members of the previous government, my predecessors, who went into exile, and European judges saying they're free citizens, they can't be charged, uh, extradition orders being cancelled from Spain. Whereas in Spain, there's a completely different attitude where judges uh, have kept uh, the other half of the Catalan government in jail and prevented detention for two years. And when finally the trial was was held and the sentences were ruled, they get condemned to a total of 100 years in jail for people who didn't harm anybody, who didn't hurt anybody, who uh, didn't steal anything. Well, that doesn't look pretty good as a mm. record uh, for... Uh, democratic government so it's not a very good idea to send uh, all these signals to the world that instead of sitting down and talking you're engaging in shutting people's mouths closing them down and preventing the voters from freely expressing their options through the vote and I guess as you mentioned, since the since the court ruling, since the convictions, mm-hmm. have you noticed anyone's changed their perspective at all, or is anyone more willing to to sort of listen or engage? Yes, or? yes. Uh, we can sense that very much so in Europe, mm-hmm. but also here, the feeling that sentencing political leaders to jail terms, not for violence, not for dealing, but for organizing a vote, that doesn't look proper. And there was the hope that uh, Mr. Sanchez, the socialist premier, would change things, especially after Rajoy, who was seen as uh, responsible for the crackdown uh, on the Catalan referendum two years ago. But Well, we have been deceived and frustrated by Mr. Sanchez, but I think that uh, world opinion at large also. We we actually contributed, as you know, to bringing Sanchez to office and substituting Rajoy, the previous one, by him. Uh, What we have seen is uh, Mr. Sanchez engaging in hard talk and proving himself to be a hawk and a hardliner and approaching his... Position to extreme Spanish nationalism. Now, we believe he has a responsibility, for instance, in calling for yet another election where he was hoping to gain ground, to be stronger, and exactly the opposite happened. Not only did he become weaker, but he reduced his options and he opened up the door, uh, legitimizing all this and, and naturalizing all this tough talk, opening up the door for uh, the extreme right of parties like Vox, which has doubled its representation. On the other hand, he was hoping to weaken the pro-independence movement in Catalonia, and we actually came out strengthened by Mm. the elections, the Spanish elections. So it all went wrong for him. He he played a gamble and he lost it. So where do you see things now? Where does that position your party now with him, and where do you see things could go because of that? We see that he's in a difficult position, even weaker than before. So, um, if he wants help, he will have to realize that 
the conflict has to be solved or addressed at least. Now, what are we asking for? Unconditional talks with no red lines. And our proposal, if those talks start, is to devise a democratic way out. Another referendum, you mean? Yes, or like in Scotland. So, an like agreed a, referendum. An agreed referendum. Of course. Mm -hmm. And as far as having another referendum, I mean, he's been denying that. Is your hope that things have changed enough with him politically that he'd be willing to have those those talks now that he's been opposed well, what to? What other option do we have? Mm -hmm. Because we think that our proposal is not only ours, it's not only the best, but it's the only possible one. Come on, we live in the 21st century. Western world. Um, does he honestly him or whoever else in the powers of the state in Spain, do they hope to fix this by cracking down, by repression, by jail, by exile? What, what, what do they expect to do? In fact, one of the problems if we start sitting down and talking, which we hope to do, is um, we don't have any proposal forthcoming from the Spanish government side. And uh, that's basically their problem. But it affects all of us, so uh, we urge them to come and offer something. Whatever they think is best, most reasonable. We think our option is reasonable and it's full of common sense. They did it in Scotland, they did it in Quebec. It's been done a number of times. It's not something bizarre. And also, it doesn't impose anything on anybody because we're not going to impose a Catalan Republic. It's up to the people to decide. We just want 100% of the citizens to be able to take part in that decision. And that's what you call citizen empowerment. We think it should work that way. We're not in the Middle Ages. And if Sanchez continues to refuse a referendum, do you see from your side any room for middle ground? Middle ground between what and what? we know where our ground is we know where we stand we have a position, we have a proposal if we don't know what the other side is proposing we don't know where the middle is so let them come and say something goodness sake we're waiting and there's suffering and there's a political crisis going on and it's increasing and it's spilling out it's not an internal affair not anymore this is in United Nations. Uh, we've had Amnesty International saying, release these people. We've seen the International Commission of Jurists saying the same thing. We've seen debates about this in the German Bundestag, in Westminster, in the French Senate, in the Assembly, in Lisbon, in Rome. It's all over the place. And then, of course, we have the issue of the European Parliament three members of the European Parliament were accepted by Spanish authorities to run for European elections. They were voted by two million people. They were elected. And then the Spanish authorities vetoed them on bureaucratic grounds, saying they have to go and pick up their credentials. Oh, come on. There's one of these three who's sitting in jail just a couple of kilometers 
from the place where you have to pick up their credentials. And he asked for a permit to go and pick up his credentials. They said, you'll have to swear the Spanish constitutions. He said, no, there's no problem. I'll do that. I have no problem with that. And they said, we won't allow you to get out of prison and pick up your credentials. Now, isn't that a vulneration of the rights of political representation? Isn't that a vulneration of voters' rights? More than two million people. Isn't that a frontal challenge to the sovereignty of the European Parliament? Who decides who should represent European citizens? The citizens themselves or the member state bureaucracies? Because what's happening now in Spain tomorrow can happen in any other member state of the European Union. Mm -hmm. how, how does the European Parliament stand after that? Mm -hmm. The other day I was speaking with this French senator and he was telling me I feel threatened by this as a European because whoever sits in the European Parliament is also representing me and I think uh, he said I think Spain has done the, the wrong thing that was Catalan Foreign Minister Alfred Bosch speaking with Politico's Emma Anderson that's it for this week and for this year on EU Confidential. We're taking a two-week holiday break and we'll be back with you on Thursday, January the 9th. If you miss us too much, why not dive into our back catalogue? We have more than 130 episodes available featuring interviews with people right across the political spectrum and beyond. Please consider rating, reviewing and spreading the word about the show. And remember, we want you to send suggestions for our New Year's resolutions to podcast at politico.eu. The whole podcast team wishes you a great holiday. Finally, thanks to producer Christina Gonzalez and thanks to you for listening. <laughs>